0: Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. When my kids and I gather, and my wife and I gather for evening prayers, we often will want to sing a hymn. And because we're exhausted, sometimes we will only sing one verse of the hymn. Now, by and large, this is fine, but for some hymns, it's just not a great idea. For instance, A Mighty Fortress. Sing the first verse only and this is how it ends. The old satanic foe has sworn to work us woe. With craft and dreadful might, he arms himself to fight. On earth he has no equal. Good night, kids. <laughs> Sleep no, of course, that's not fair to Luther. Luther's unfolding a whole story uh, in which a victorious champion in the second verse will come to fight. but but we need to have the whole thing in order to understand the nature of this spiritual struggle. We need to know both the enemy and the victor because a mighty fortress is a battle hymn, a battle hymn of the church. Now, that battle imagery is what I want to put before you tonight as the image that Mark is giving us in Mark's Mark's gospel for the temptation of Jesus. And in order to see this, we have to kind of recognize that the world has changed a lot since Luther wrote his great hymn. Warfare doesn't look the same way it looked then, or even in the biblical world. I mean, a mighty fortress is not going to get you very far against bombs that we can drop these days. But then, people would have known war differently. They would have known both that a mighty fortress, that is our God, would be a tremendously important thing. It'd be a bastion that you could stand safely in. But they also would have known the experience, perhaps they themselves or their fathers or grandfathers would have known what it was like to stand on a battlefield, arrayed against an enemy, and to see your king going on ahead of you, leading into battle. That too is not an experience we really have anymore. So we're gonna need to do a little bit of imagining if we're gonna understand how Mark is portraying Jesus as our victorious king. Now, this is the first Sunday in Lent, when we traditionally, the lectionary puts before us the temptation narratives of Jesus. And this year, our focus is Mark. Now, Mark is beautifully brief and concise. And in this, we actually get three different scenes that he puts before us, or our our lectionary puts before us. And I wanna actually take a moment to contemplate each of these three scenes, to think of them kind of as a a triptych, a three-panel painting surrounding a common object, a common theme the battle between God and, the, and Satan, between the goodness of God in Christ and the, the evil one. Now, to contemplate this, we actually first have to do a little bit of a background work in a biblical theology. We need to understand what creation is. Creation is captive territory. It is not a bad thing you need to be rescued from. God created the world, human bodies, human minds, cultures. He created them as good things to be reigned over by his image bearers, man and woman, Adam and Eve, created to bear his authority and represent that authority and reign under him, over his good world. But of course, our world is not so good anymore. It is occupied. It is under the power of a a usurping tyrant, a creature, the Satan, who led humanity into rebellion, captured our hearts, and enslaved all creation through our rebellion. So if we're going to understand the battle, we need to recognize that the battle of God is not to rescue souls from this mistake of creation, but to liberate a captive creation from a foreign usurper. We need to think more of, of France under Nazi occupation than of people being rescued. God's creation captive to evil. Humans as God, God's good image bearers who have been led into rebellion and enslaved, whose hearts and minds are therefore captive. And imagine a king of a country who rebels against his own country and brings in a foreign occupying power to dominate his own people. That's what creation is. So if God's going to fix this creation, what is he going to do? He needs to make a new king. He needs a new king who will rule justly and rightly and will throw out the enemy occupier and reign under God. And the way God has designed this, he needs both image bearers a son of Adam and a daughter of Eve. And with that battle, that setting in mind, now we can hear what God is doing in the the first panel of our painting. He is declaring his champion. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, or actually into him, Like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the baptism of Jesus is doing a couple specific things. In the first place, it is recognizing this man from Nazareth, Jesus, as God's anointed messianic king. You are my son. You are my designated representative ruler. And in you, I delight. I am well pleased. And not only this, but God is giving that son his spirit and doing so in a special way. Mark mentions the rending of the heavens, the splitting of the heavens. And this is a sign, if you know your Old Testament terribly well, you know that this means that this is God's last battle, the last war. The theological word for this is eschatological. This is the end game, if you will. The final fight to free creation in which God has come himself, tearing the heavens and coming down himself to free his captive world. Thus his champion is declared. God is picking the fight. And so he gives him the spirit of God who leads him into the fight. Look at verse 12. That spirit that came into Jesus immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now there's a ton of things to talk about just in these short two verses. But if we move from our first panel in which God has declared his champion king and given him the spirit and we see now how that spirit leads him into battle, into victorious battle. We need to first recognize the spirit is the one driving him. Mark's word here in Greek, drive is actually a little less forceful than the, the Greek word. The Greek word is ekballo, which is the same word Mark will use nine or ten times later in the gospel for when Jesus casts out demons. That is to forcefully propel someone. The spirit forcefully propels Jesus out into the wilderness, out into the place beyond civilization and safety, out into the place where beasts lurk, and robbers dwell, and demons dwell, to confront the Satan on his own turf, to go take his stand where the first Adam fell, where Israel fell, and triumph. So we need to recognize it is the spirit who's picking this fight, who's leading the victor into battle. Now Mark actually doesn't tell us uh, how the details of how this battle goes like Matthew and Luke does. He mentions a few things that are kind of interesting, though. These wild beasts that are with him. Well, what is that about? Sometimes I've heard this, I've seen this represented in very sentimental terms like Jesus was hanging out with bunny rabbits and goats or something. But this is actually more likely a reference to Psalm 91, especially when you pair it with the angels who are ministering to Jesus. He will com- which Psalm 91 says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The most that we can make out of this presence of the beasts is that they don't get Jesus. Because in the beasts that dwell in the wilderness were not cute, cuddly bunnies. They were wolves that would snatch your children. They were things that would hurt and harm you, but they didn't get Jesus. There's a a, a creed from the Maasai tribe in Africa. It's uh, their kind of rendition of the Apostles' Creed. And one of their best lines in this right out of the experience of their own culture, is when they Jesus was nailed to a tree, they buried him in the earth, and the hyenas did not get him. They were used to the reality that outside the bounds of their home were wild beasts who, and now, didn't get Jesus. And interestingly, in this battle, not even Jesus fights alone. He is served and ministered to by the angels. But Mark does not leave us with the story of how this temptation unfolded, but he does, and, and in doing so, he doesn't actually let us know that it's over. He describes the battle as a thing that happens over the course of 40 days, but then leaves open the possibility of how it, and when it ends. Because while Jesus emerges victorious, the battle and the war are not over. We might say that the first battle is over, but the war continues. So if you're a champion, and you've been declared, and you have then engaged in battle, and you've, you've won your first battle, what do you do next? You take turf. You liberate captives. And that's what Jesus does in the third panel, the last part of our text. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He invades Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is here at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is almost impossible for us having 2,000 years of hearing the word gospel as a churchy word, as a a religious word, it's almost impossible for us to hear this the way Mark's initial readers would hear this. Which is that the word gospel was before, uh, before it was a religious term, it was simply a political term. A term for the news that a new king had come. There's an inscription about Caesar Augustus heralding his birth, giving the gospel of a new age of peace that that arrives when Caesar is born. It's a political term for good, literally, good news. And Mark uses that term here for what Jesus brings to Nazareth, to, to Galilee. He brings the good news of a new king. A new king who has come to bring not the reign of the devil, not the reign of the evil one, but the reign of God. To free captives. And here's what's crucial, what's to understand. He's not just taking more ground of creation. He is liberating captives. He is freeing for himself a bride, a people who will know him as the son of God and will follow him as king. And so this battle will continue as Jesus continues to take more and more from the devil, freeing more captives, casting out demons, teaching with authority, healing the sick, raising the dead, forgiving sins, extending the reign out into the Gentiles. And of course, we know Satan will continue to fight, right? He will uh, lead Peter, he will hide in Peter's objection and try to steer Jesus away from his purpose. The demons will try to expose Jesus and religious leaders will oppose him. And of course, the devil will enter Judas and lead him into betrayal. And in the garden, the Satan will tempt Jesus by his own human instinct to survive, to turn to a different route, and to pray for some other cup than the one the Father has given him. But Jesus follows. Jesus follows faithfully as the victorious king who resists the tempter all the way to the cross. All the way through the betrayal, all the way through the lies, all the way through the false accusations, he goes willingly and obediently as the champion king to conquer Satan on his own turf. Where death and condemnation and hell reign, Jesus gives himself freely. And you know what happens at the cross in Mark's Gospel? we hear an echo of Jesus' baptism. Not from the heavens splitting open, but from a Roman centurion, an unclean Gentile, saying, truly this man is the Son of God. Jesus wins, and when he rises, the Satan is defeated forever. Sin and death and hell are defeated forever. So the sins he forgave, they get to stay forgiven. The demons he drove out stay out. The people he freed stay free and the people he will raise from the dead get to stay raised from the dead because he wins. And he has made for himself his bride, the church, the community of people, an army that join him in this fight because this gospel has come to you. It comes to you today that the reign of God is here and now in and with his church freeing you, calling you to turn away from your allegiance to the darkness, your allegiance to evil, and to trust that Jesus actually wins this story of history. And the season of Lent is the time when we renew our struggle because we weren't simply passive, uh, uh, passive victims. We were accomplices in evil, and we were freed not simply to be passive recipients of freedom, but to be active participants in the battle. The gospel that Jesus came as victorious king calls us to repent and believe and to follow to join our king in the struggle, precisely because we see him out on the field, going on ahead of us, we see him strike down our enemy, we know that we win. To be in Christ is to be united to the one who is reconciling all things. And so, these three panels of Jesus' victory are the three panels of our Lenten struggle. At our baptisms, we were called a son or a daughter of God. Uh, someone in whom you, God is well pleased, in spite of your rebellion and your sin, because of Jesus' obedience, his victory gone before you. You now get to be part of this. You get to be called a son or daughter of the king. So you don't fight, you don't struggle during Lent in order to become a child. You fight because you are a child, because you were filled with that same spirit that drove Jesus into conflict. You go into conflict. It drives you into conflict with the Satan. So you spend your 40 days, your time of trial, not simply suffering the devil's assaults, but engaging in battle, fighting against your captive sinful nature. You don't, you don't have to go out into the wilderness. Your wilderness is in here. Jesus had to go out into the wilderness to be in the place of the Satan, but you know it already right here. You know it in the culture that it surrounds you. Your flesh wars against the spirit, and your spirit wars back. And so you have to know, you, and part of the reason for Lent is to recognize that we all have to keep fighting. If we don't keep fighting, we will fall. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that those who think they stand should take heed lest they fall. So the Christian life of temptation, of being attacked by the evil one, it's precisely because we've been declared children of God and filled with his spirit, we start fighting and we keep fighting. Let me get practical in what this looks like. We recognize temptation for what it is. Temptation comes in two forms. The first is, is those of desire. The Satan leads us to desire the creature rather than the creator. Maybe the, the creature of our own sinful desires, our own fleshly desires, whether it be for money or comfort or reputation or sexual gratification. Or maybe it's from the pressures of our outside world to conform to their story, to live by their values and not live by the values of our king. The second form of temptation is not to ignore the creator, but to despise the creator, to despair before him, because he allows us to suffer. The weakness you feel from sickness, the loss of loved ones, the pain you know from this broken world, they tempt you to think that God has given up, that God loses this fight. And they tempt you to despair at your king, But both are united in that they are insults on the God who called you his own. They are assaults on the word of God that made you his own. And thus they are carried on in that same confidence that Jesus actually wins. That Jesus called us his own and declared us his people. And our king has gone ahead of us and won the decisive victory. And that means that when we fall, when you fall into temptation and you give into that despair or into that desire, your king is the healer who will raise you by his forgiveness. When we are weak, he is strong. And so we can fight in confidence of him, struggle against the enemy that he conquered, but do so knowing his promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet, church. The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Think about gates. They're defensive. The gates of hell will not prevail against you, church. They will not stand up to the word that you have been given. Which leads us to the third panel. Why did Jesus go through all this? Why did he enter the battlefield? Why did he win the fight? Was it for himself? No, it was for others, for those that he might free. And so your Lenten struggle against temptation is not for you, it's not for your sake. You don't need to earn any more Jesus points. You don't need to earn your status as a son or daughter. You do it for those you've been called to love not merely for yourself, but for those whom Jesus frees through you. Your children need you to fight your own selfishness. My wife needs me to fight my own selfishness. My congregation needs me to fight my own laziness or insecurity or anger or pride. You fight your sin not to earn points, but to be a source of freedom and delight and love to the people that Jesus has given you. And so any Lenten discipline you do should come from this question, where, can I, where is my sin hurting those people I love? Fight there. Ask yourself where your sin in here or your sin out there is hurting the people that God has given you and fight there. The one way to do this is through prayer. We often don't think of prayer as, as that powerful of a thing, but, all our Lent, but of all our Lenten disciplines, this perhaps is the most important, to ask who needs my prayer? I heard a story of a little girl who uh, was struggling to sleep and she she couldn't fall asleep so she talked to her mom and said, I I just lay there in bed for hours and I don't know how to fall asleep. And her mom told her, well, pray for your grandmother. Pray for your grandmother. Because at the time, her grandmother, who was in her early 50s, uh, her husband was dying. And her grandmother really needed her prayer. And so this little girl laid in bed and prayed hours and hours and hours. You know what started happening? She says later, after she started praying for her grandmother, she began to have terrifying visions of demons. She began to be attacked. Why? Because she was taking the fight to the devil's turf. And what she was doing mattered. And it threatened the powers of evil. So who needs your prayer? Who needs your prayer? Who needs you to fight your own selfishness? One of the things we're going to do this uh, Lenten season is we're going to pray the litany in our non-communion services. And we're not going to go into it today. We don't have time. But I want you to, I'm encouraging you on something I am doing at home is praying the litany because it is something of a battle prayer of the church. It is not simply a a pleading for our own well-being, but a prayer for all who need it and a prayer of victorious conquering over the darkness. So I encourage you to to consider the litany as as part of your own Lenten prayers. When we do this, When we make this struggle, we do this because we know that our struggle matters for those that we love. But we do it in the confidence that we know how this war ends. Jesus is God's anointed king. He has conquered our enemy and he has brought us into his kingdom. And so we, as sons and daughters of God, get to fight in the spirit and by the spirit, knowing who wins this fight. Knowing that the struggle that we undertake is a good and glorious one, even when it is marked by pain and suffering so we can sing that last verse or the third verse of luther's great hymn let this world's tyrant rage in battle will engage his might is doomed to fail for god's judgment must prevail one little word subdues him amen and may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in jesus christ our victorious king We stand and we sing.